Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedekes. And now get ready to think. And I am here to host the first ever debate on my channel, or I should say real debate, because the only debates that have happened so far was a, a loose conversation between myself and Joel, and it did not go in my favor. So I finally feel like I organized two great people who are going to provide uh, some great insight for you tonight. Uh, we will be following a debate format. They will be each providing 10-minute opening statements. We'll go into rebuttals, cross-examinations, and so on. But the question is, is belief in the Bible reasonable? Hopefully, we will answer that question for you today. And if you haven't had a chance yet, make sure you like and subscribe. In the meantime, I would like to welcome both Joel and Ken. Thanks for coming on. And it would help if I unmuted your microphones. There we go. Awesome. Ken, how are you doing? Doing good. How are you doing? Good. Joel, how are you? Great, man. Looking forward to this. So am I. This how is going to be awesome. So for those watching, uh, I am just moderating. So when they are on screen, I will be off screen. I will be keeping a timer on my side to time these debates. When there is one minute left, the bell will ring and then I will interject. So before we get started, I'd like to start with Kenneth. Kenneth, after serving, uh, sorry, his bio, that's what I should have led with. Uh, after serving as a paratrooper in the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division, Ken studied English literature and neuroscience at San Diego State University, where he began publicly writing about social and political issues and was president of the SDSU Secular Student Alliance. He spent a year as a congressional intern before moving to New York and getting his JD from the Fordham University School of Law. He lives and works in Chicago, Illinois. Hey. He's read God is not great like four times. He likes, which I love this, I love this. He likes long walks on the shores of Lake Michigan and dislikes logical fallacies. Yeah. Thanks, Kat. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> Me too. And without further ado, I don't want to overhype Joel, but if you go back and you see the first debate, it did not go in my favor. If you go and you see the, the second conversation, I think it went better, um, but I learned quickly that I am not a debater, so I am leaving it to the experts. So, Joel Sedekes is partnering with Church Catalyst with Crew Church Movements in Chicago. Since 2019, Joel has been the founder and lead teacher of the Think Institute. Joel has worked in the fields of Christian education, evangelism, leadership, and apologetics since 2009, including serving as a Bible teacher at Chicago Hope Academy, student ministry pastor at Grace Point Church Plainfield, and interim lead pastor at Park Community Church in Forest Glen, Chicago. Joel completed his undergraduate studies in history, Grove City College, PA, and earned his master's degree in philosophy of religion at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Illinois. He is the author of The Doctrine Shapes of Defense, The Importance of the Trinity in John's Frame's Apologetics. According to Jonathan Edwards, what America's great mind can teach us about defending the Christian faith, as well as catechids, the New Covenant Catechism for Little Ones. Joel is married to Eliza, and they have four wonderful children together. Welcome, Joel. 
Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. Okay, so we are going to start with opening statements. So without further ado, uh, as I recall, I believe Joel will be starting us off. So I am going to bow off screen, and I am going to let these two powerhouses go at it. All right, I'm going to start my timer here. Ken, thanks for doing this. Brandon, thanks for hosting it. Um, as we get started, I just want to define some terms. I think that's important for us to do. And um, our debate tonight is over whether belief in the Bible is reasonable. So we need to define these terms, Bible, belief, and reasonable. When we're talking about the Bible, when I'm what I'm talking about is the 66 books of the Old and New Testament and, um, and everything contained within them. Now, I, that might seem a little um, silly that I even have to define what the Bible is, but we are in an age when biblical literacy is on the decline. Research shows this, but you don't have to study the research to know it. Just ask any 11th grader what the name of Noah's wife was, and odds are they're going to say Joan of Arc. Uh, and if you didn't get that joke, you're part of the problem. Um, so we, we're talking about the Bible, and we're talking about belief. Belief is very simple. It's just accepting something as true. But what about reasonable? What about reasonableness? Well, reason is a faculty or capacity to reach the truth or to get in touch with reality. And what is reasonable is what is in accordance with reason. Our debate tonight is not over whether the Bible is true, uh, whether something is true or not. It may or may not still be reasonable. 2,000 years ago, flat earthism would have been reasonable to hold, perhaps, but it still would not have been true. However, I am approaching the debate as a Christian who believes that the Bible is 100% true. So you can expect me to argue from that position tonight. Now, speaking of positions, Ken and I are operating from very different positions. We're operating from different worldviews. And this poses a challenge because what someone judges as reasonable or unreasonable is going to greatly vary depending on his or her view of the world. So Ken, from his worldview, views the Bible, as he's told me, as an anthology of unsupported claims, and therefore it's unreasonable. I, on the other hand, conclude that belief in the Bible is eminently reasonable. So how are we to judge between Ken's position and mine? Well, we'll have to compare worldviews. We'll have to see which one is consistent, coherent, and supports its own claims. So let's talk about our big idea. Well, first of all, here's something encouraging. Both Ken and I share a desire to be reasonable. Now, Ken and I have agreed to debate tonight, and earlier today I had gotten embroiled in some debates online with some uh, some atheists on social media, and I highly recommend that if you want to raise your blood pressure. No offense to these folks I was talking with, but um, but it was quite an experience, and I found myself sadly being misrepresented, um, and uh, it just it wasn't a pretty picture. And so shortly thereafter, I reached out to Ken to make sure that everything was on the up and up. And I said, Ken, I hope that we can both strive to be reasonable tonight, not lying, not intentionally misrepresenting each other's positions, et cetera. And Ken's answer was so reassuring. He said, I thought that kind of went without saying. Well, let me tell you, in the world of internet debates, that is incredibly refreshing. So Ken, kudos to you, man. Thank you for that. Um, so Ken expressed a desire to be reasonable, and so did I. We agreed on those preconditions of this debate, but here's the problem. This means that before the debate began, I had already won the debate. 
Why do I say that? Because reasonableness has its foundation in the biblical worldview. One must tacitly presuppose the truth of the Bible in order to coherently believe in reasonableness as a meaningful concept. The proof that belief in the Bible is reasonable is that you couldn't be reasonable if the Bible weren't true. See, the Bible alone accounts for the three components of reasonability, the three R's, the rules of reason, the reality around us, and the reliability of our capacities. Let's talk about the rules. What are the rules of reason? Well, the first rules are the laws of logic. These are the inescapable truths about truths, as James Anderson and Greg Welty call them. And these govern our thoughts. Our beliefs must adhere to the laws of logic to be reasonable. Furthermore, we have an obligation. There's a certain oughtness bound up with this whole conversation where we ought to be reasonable. We ought to use our faculties to the, um, according to the laws of logic in order to come and seek to come to true conclusions about the world. This is why when I told Ken that I hoped that we would both be reasonable, he said, well, I thought that goes without saying. And of course, he's absolutely right. We both recognize the obligation to be reasonable. Um, so we've got the rules and uh, we've got the reality around us. The reality around us is the external world about which we are trying to acquire true beliefs using our reason. We believe that there is a there out there. We believe that there is a, a world outside of ourselves and that we can reason our way to true conclusions about the world. It's kind of like that old X-Files slogan, the truth is out there. Well, that, those are the first two R's. And then the second R, or the third R rather, is the reliability of human reason for producing true beliefs in appropriate circumstances. We expect to be able to plug in data from the world and to chug out true conclusions about it. So the um, so that's my argument tonight. And my argument, uh, if, if I were to flesh it out, it would go something like this. The rules of reasonableness require um, belief in the Bible. You see, when it comes down to the laws of logic, we've got um, the law of identity, a thing is what it is. The law of non-contradiction, a proposition cannot be both true and false in the same way at the same time. The law of excluded middle, a proposition is true or false, never neutral. And laws of proper inference, where a proposition is true if it logically follows from another true position. For example, if A, then B, A, therefore B. Uh, we've also... Um, We've also got the law of moral obligation to be reasonable, which I addressed earlier. Now, what are these laws? What are they like? Well, they are immaterial, they are invariant, they are universal, and they are knowable. The Christian worldview accounts for these laws because in the Bible, God is immaterial, John 4, 24, invariant, Malachi 3, 6, Psalm 90, verse 2, Jeremiah 33, 25. He is universal. He's everywhere. See Psalm 139, 7 through 10. And God is knowable. In fact, God reveals himself to us throughout scripture and in the natural world. See Romans 1, 18 through 24, Romans 11, 36, Daniel 4, 34 through 36, and Colossians 2, 2 and 3. Now, to be clear, I'm not trying to prove God's existence in an atheistic or even a neutral worldview. I don't believe in neutrality. I'm rather saying that from within the biblical worldview, this debate makes perfect sense. And this is basic Christianity. Now, the challenge for my opponent tonight is to account for the rules of reason from principles that are derived from a starting point of 
atheism. That's his challenge and that's his burden of proof. Well, what about the reality around us? Well, for reasonableness to be a meaningful concept, there must be an actual external reality that both exists and is intelligible to us about which we can reason. So logic must obtain, uh, the law of induction must obtain, we must be able to draw conclusions about the whole from a sample size of um, less than the whole, and we must be able to reason about the future based on the past. But given an atheistic situation, our access to the universe disappears. We can't assume the law of induction. We have no basis for the law of logic and even our moral obligations go away. Given an, uh, an atheistic situation, David Hume argued back in 1740 in his inquiry concerning human understanding, um, many of the enlightenment assumptions about scientific knowledge simply evaporate. There is no induction on a godless worldview. And Immanuel Kant put the nail in the coffin when he reasoned, quite apart from Christian theism, that we can only know the world of phenomena and we cannot know the noumena, the thing in itself. So this leaves my opponent in a very uh, precarious situation tonight. He has to account for all these things to even get to the starting point of defining reasonableness as a meaningful category. And then, of course, there's the reliability of the human reasoning capabilities. Ken's burden is that he has to establish how the existence of reason comports with his worldview. And he has to further prove that the biblical worldview is contrary to reason. And he has to do this starting from atheistic principles. And Ken's going to tell you he doesn't actually have any atheistic principles. He simply lacks belief in God. However, there are several principles which Ken does hold, which we are going to flesh out in the course of this debate. And, um, and I'm very much looking forward to that. Uh, so I hear the bell. It sounds like that's my time. And um, I'm looking you still forward have a to, minute. You, to you still have a minute. Left. Oh, one minute. Okay, yeah. great. Um, so the um, so in in uh, if if Ken's world really obtained, we would be nothing more than atoms, unless he wants to provide another basis for how he could, there could be a duality between the mind and the body, in which case we can have that conversation. But Ken's argument must essentially come down to I, a collocation of atoms and molecules have the sensation of believing that the Bible is unreasonable. And my response to that is simply, so what? Who cares? Why should we trust anything that a collocation of atoms has to say? On the other hand, the Bible um, assumes and actually teaches strongly that man is made in the image of God. We are encouraged to reason, and therefore we can have faith in the reliability of our truth-seeking faculties, including reason. Ken's going to point to stories in the Bible that he are, is going to call implausible and irrational to believe, but as the debate will will go, we'll see that his conclusions are ultimately unfounded. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that, Joel. Uh, we are now going to move on to Kenneth. Kenneth, are you ready? Yeah. Awesome. Please go ahead. Awesome. So yeah, tonight's topic is belief in the Bible reasonable. Um, I think the best way to begin, because there's so much variety and disagreement in terms of what people mean when they say they believe in the Bible, is, is just like Joel, to focus for a moment on two of our terms. So Joel and I agree about belief. Uh, what we mean when we say we believe something is that that's just we're referring to the state of being convinced that something is true. And we agree that belief should not be conflated with certainty or knowledge. So if at any point we start talking about how we know something or how we can be certain of something, we will have disengaged from the topic here to a certain extent. Um, so I was thinking about this. There, there, uh, there's an analogy I want to make about belief. If someone came into your living room and told you that a fire was about to consume your home, what would it take for you to believe such a claim? Uh, what if you had heard sirens moments before your door opened or seen a fire truck pull in front of your house and the person making the claim was wearing a firefighter's uniform? What if you could smell smoke? Would you require absolute certainty 
before following the fireman outside? Uh, or would belief be sufficient to compel you to act? And, and I think this is an important point because our beliefs certainly don't exist in a vacuum. They inform and they guide our actions, which is why debates like this are so important. Beliefs are consequential. Um, and so the second term is reasonable. Um, and I want to focus on when it becomes reasonable to believe something. We agree, Joel and I, on the definition of reason, but I want to just plant a flag here that a belief becomes reasonable when good justification has been presented in support of the belief. There's a cause and effect relationship here that, that a belief adopts the quality of reasonableness only in the presence of sufficient justification. So is it reasonable to believe in the Bible? Well, what does it even mean to believe in the Bible? There's a lot of disagreement about this question. Belief in the Bible means something very different depending on who you're talking to. If you're talking to a Baptist, a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, a Jew, a Muslim, if you ask people from all of these distinct faith traditions with mutually exclusive beliefs, if they believe in the Bible, they're all gonna say yes. So it's a good idea to, to question how we can determine whose perspective on the Bible should be taken seriously. Uh, because Joel is a Christian, I'm going to focus on how Christians relate to the Bible in my experience. Some Christians uh, believe the Bible is a book that should be read literally and that it is scientifically and historically accurate. Um, scientific and historic claims in the Bible, like all claims, fall into three categories. There's those that are true, like the existence of certain historical figures and locations. These claims are true independent of the Bible. So belief in the Bible is not necessary to hold such demonstrably true beliefs. You can believe that Bethlehem is a real place or Pontius Pilate was a real person without having to believe in the Bible. Um, you've got claims that are demonstrably untrue, like the creation and flood myths in Genesis, or a claim uh, like the one in Genesis 11 that around 2400 BCE, that the whole earth was of one language and the proliferation of linguistic groups on earth can be explained as the result of God deliberately frustrating uh, a construction project that he didn't like. Um, there's claims like the Exodus narrative, which Jewish and Egyptian archeologists agreed never happened. Then we've got claims that either have not or cannot be demonstrated to be true. Questions like, were uh, Abraham and Moses mythical figures? Did the battles described in, in the books of Samuel where the Israelites clashed with the Canaanites even happen? Uh, these narratives aren't supported by archeological evidence. What about figures like David or Solomon? There's very little archeological evidence that they existed and what does exist contradicts the biblical narrative. What about more fanciful claims like that uh, uh, Balaam spoke to his donkey in Numbers 22 or that Jonah was swallowed by a large fish or that Goliath was nine feet tall like it says in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17 um, or the claim in Genesis 5 that Methuselah lived for 970 years. What about the New Testament? Did Jesus really walk on water like it says in Matthew 14? When would it even be reasonable to believe that such a story is true? The historicity of the Gospels is a topic of significant scholarly disagreement, and even the Gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, which seems consequential, um, they aren't consistent. What were Jesus's last words? It depends on the Gospel you read. How many women came to Jesus's tomb? Again, depends on which Gospel you read. Um, how many people did they see when they got to the tomb? Was it one, like in Matthew and Mark, or two, like in Luke and John? When Jesus died, did an earthquake open graves all over Jerusalem with resurrected people walking around being seen by people? Why is it that only Matthew reported this event? When would it be reasonable to believe such a claim that a sort of zombie outbreak occurred when Jesus was crucified? Other believers uh, believe in the Bible as a divine source of moral guidance and clarity, but the problem with this is that the Bible is precisely what you would expect from its authors when it comes to moral guidance. 
In other words, there's no moral or ethical teaching in the Bible that you wouldn't expect to come from merely human sources. And because of this, biblical narratives and their precepts are either morally objectionable, and here books like Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy spring to mind, as well as most of the stories of the Old Testament prophets, or they're just morally obvious, like the golden rule, which predates the Bible, is found in most religious traditions, and which evolutionary psychology has an explanation for. Speaking of those Old Testament prophets, what do we learn about the God of the Bible from biblical narratives? Let's consider the story of the prophet Elisha and the two bears. So in 2 Kings, Elisha is on his way to Bethel, and on his way, some youths come from the city, and they mock him for being bald. So in chapter 2, verse 24, he turns around and looks at them and pronounces a curse on them in the name of the Lord, and two bears come out of the woods, and they maul 42 of the youths. What are we meant to learn from this story? What does such a story tell us about the nature of the biblical God and his prophets? Remember, according to the Bible, God is unchanging. Presumably, the same God who sent the bears to kill the kids who made fun of his bald prophet is the same one people are praying to right now for protection from coronavirus. Consider the great moral wisdom of the story of Jephthah in Judges 11. All right, Jephthah was one of the 18 judges who supposedly governed God's chosen people, the Israelites, from the time of Joshua until Saul was anointed as king. The story goes that Jephthah makes a vow to God that if, if God will deliver the Ammonites into his hands on the battlefield, that Jephthah would sacrifice as a burnt offering to God whatever came out of the door of his house to meet him when he returned. So he goes into battle, he slaughters the Ammonites, and when he returns to his house, his young daughter, his only child, came out to meet him. And Jephthah's upset, but he's bound by his promise. I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow, he says. The girl, who's oddly never referred to by name, asks for two months so she can go into the mountains and weep for her virginity because she would never marry. And the story concludes with Jephthah doing with her according to his vow that he'd made. He, he kills her. Believers, in my experience, are quick to exonerate Abraham for being willing to take his son Isaac on what Christopher Hitchens described as a long and gloomy walk, because Isaac gets spared in the end. But they always seem to forget about Jephthah's poor, nameless daughter. And there are so many weird stories like this in the Bible. It is painfully easy to find passages in the Bible promoting human sacrifice or slavery or vilifying homosexuals or making second-class citizens out of women. The idea that this book is an example of moral flourishing or that it comes from a divine source as opposed to generations of superstitious, sexist, homophobic, generally ignorant human beings is a tough pill to swallow. And I can already hear Christians objecting to my citing of Old Testament passages as exemplars of the, of the moral deficits of the Bible which is curious to me because the doctrines of the Old Testament, especially original sin, are essential to the idea that humanity needs a savior. But it seems obvious to me that the most evil notions are actually found in the New Testament, where the ideas of eternal torture and predestined limited substitutional atonement for sins are found. The, the idea that by subjugating yourself before God against the threat of, let's bring up Jonathan Edwards. In his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he describes a sudden unexpected destruction. If you just Bow to God, you may escape the wrath and uh, absolve yourself of your sins. It, it, I've heard it described like a mob protection racket, as if the Bible is saying, that's an awfully nice soul you got there. It'd be a real shame if something happened to it. So not only is this idea morally reprehensible, it's, it's just completely unsupported by evidence and therefore unreasonable. The Bible makes metaphysical claims that are unsubstantiated. Appeals to the supernatural have never been proven. And frankly, I don't know how they could be. Perhaps Joel will provide us with a mechanism we can use to test supernatural claims. In the meantime, I see no difference between the claim that Jesus rose from the dead and the claim that an image of Jesus miraculously appeared on someone's toast. How could we demonstrate supernatural causation? The Bible claims to be divinely inspired, but so do other scriptures. And I see no way to distinguish between these claims. The claims the Bible makes, they're not reasonable because they're unsupported by evidence. 
Therefore, belief in the Bible is unreasonable. The Bible fails as a historic narrative. It's not a good source of moral or ethical guidance. It makes grand claims that have yet to be substantiated. And to paraphrase, Sam Harris gives human beings bad reasons to be good when perfectly good reasons are available. Any moral truth that can be found in the Bible can be found elsewhere without all the baggage. And the historical facts in the Bible may also be found elsewhere unencumbered by nonsense. So what are we left with? We have supernatural claims and immoral nonsense. So I would say no, it is not reasonable to believe in the Bible. Oh, you finished. Uh, you finished a minute early. I'm good. All right. All right. I'm good. Great. So we are gonna great opening statements, guys. Uh, we are gonna be moving on to the uh, rebuttals. So, uh, Joel, please go ahead. All right. Thank you. Well, my opponent tonight has presented a, a series of claims, and to be fair, some of these claims are very challenging. And this is why Christian theologians write books about them and, and have for 2,000 years. Here, here's uh, an area that I would um, encourage Ken to really consider, and that's this. By lobbying, by lobbying moral accusations or um, historical accusations or logical accusations against the biblical worldview, what he's attempting to do is sort of the um, debate version of throwing rocks from his side of the fence over into my side of the fence. Um, it's It seems at first as though Ken is standing, uh, uh, attempting to stand on neutral ground and sort of um, weigh both worldviews um, independently. But in reality, Ken is an atheist and he is starting from the, the standpoint that God does not exist. And so it's certainly no surprise that if he examines the Bible and he sees something he doesn't like, he says, well, that's just what you'd expect to see um, from a God who you know doesn't exist or who I find morally objectionable. Um, the, the challenge that Ken needs to realize he's facing tonight is by making moral claims, he is appealing to a standard of morality that he has no basis for appealing to. By making logical claims, for example, his appeal to supposed logical contradictions in the gospel accounts. Uh, that presupposes a standard of logic, which I alluded to in my opening statement, and I do hope that Ken will take the time to address a, a basis for logic, given his atheistic principles. But it, it presupposes a standard for logic, which is completely unsubstantiated without the standard of God. And so Ken can come tonight and say, well, I certainly don't like what Abraham did, or I certainly don't like uh, the idea of uh, a donkey talking, but at the end of the day, Ken is a collocation of Adams given his own worldview. And we've yet to hear a positive presentation, um, an assertion, or, or any kind of proof that any of the, the, thing, the problems that Ken has with the Bible are, are um, substantiated or that we should take them seriously, other than just Ken doesn't like these things. And so I see no reason why um, from within a biblical worldview, which is perfectly consistent, there's a good reason and a good explanation for any of the claims Ken's made. Um, I see no no uh, reason. There's not a crack in the biblical worldview at all. Just to address a few of them, the biblical worldview provides a basis for thinking that miracles are weird. Miracles are out of the ordinary. And that's because God does not change according to the Bible. So there's regularity in the biblical worldview. And Ken even alluded to that. He understands that that is a biblical principle. And so when a donkey talks or a man gets swallowed by a fish or a man walks on water, the Christians read the Bible and go, 
Wow, that's surprising. Didn't expect that. But that's why in the Bible, you don't see the word miracle. You see the word signs and wonders, unless you're reading the King James Version, which is, you know, that's fine. We can, if Ken wants to go with that, we can talk about that. But the reason why these are called signs and wonders is they're meant to point to something. They're meant to point to theological, spiritual truths. And so when Jesus walks on water or when Jesus calms the storm, that is pointing to his authority and his divinity. And the disciples understood this. Uh, this is why they called him my Lord and my God. This is why they said, Who, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? But in Ken's worldview, uh, we we are the product of time and chance acting on matter. From previous conversation, I understand Ken doesn't believe in, uh, I don't think he even believes in a mitochondrial Adam and Eve. And so um, from Ken's perspective, we are literally the product of time and chance acting on matter arising from multiple populations of apes sometime in the deep, deep uh, past. And uh, the question is, what ontologically separates a, uh, an, a an ape from a man or an ape from a, a puddle of goo? But the atheistic worldview has to believe in this progression from fish to philosopher, from goo to you. And, and so here, Ken is a collocation of atoms. And it, does that mean I have one minute? I'm going to assume that means I have one minute. Um, lobbing these accusations at the Christian worldview with no basis for them whatsoever. And so Ken has yet to provide an actual positive case other than just, hey, look at all these things in the Bible that I don't like. And, you know, as a Christian with years of study, I just say, so what? Who cares? Why should anyone care what, what Ken thinks? The Bible is still perfectly reasonable within the biblical worldview. It makes complete and utter sense. It's the atheistic worldview that bears the burden of proof of accounting for logic, the external reality, and the reliability the reliability of our reasoning faculties. And so far, we just haven't seen that. So I hope we're going to see that uh, as the debate progresses. All right. Thank you, uh, Joel. Uh, we're, next, we're now going to move on to Ken and give him his five-minute rebuttal. Please put all questions you have for either Joel or Ken in the comments, and we will get to them at the end. All right. So I, I want to, you know, focus on on Joel's opening. It's it's very interesting to me. I have noticed that apologists accuse atheists of borrowing from their worldview on the grounds that logic or induction or morality are are sort of necessarily dependent on or or uniquely the result of a Christian worldview um, uh, that one must presuppose the existence of God. Um, so first flag I want to plant is that that uh, this is not an existence of God debate. Um, it, it's it's about just the reasonableness of belief in the Bible. Um, and that 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 still is sort of an amorphous thing. We haven't really defined what belief in the Bible means to Joel. Um, but I hope everyone watching notices the the uh, begging the question fallacy here. Um, so, in in its simplest form, it's X could only be grounded by my God. X exists, therefore my God exists. And you can plug in logic or morality. In, in place of X and, and see what's what's happening here. Logic uh, could only be granted by my God. Logic exists, therefore my God exists. Um, this is this is a sort of, of, of common uh, theme with, with with presuppositional apologetics. Um, I I have no problem with with presupposing uh, logic. I don't know where else we could start from. Um, the the laws of logic that Joel described. Um, I see these as 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 descriptive of the universe that we seem to find ourselves in, of the, of the reality that we're in. Um, to, to even argue against the laws of logic existing, you would have to necessarily invoke the laws of logic. So we've got the laws of logic as this sort of axiomatic starting point. Um, 
I don't see the need to to spend a lot of time on on trying to to ground them. Um, I I can't ground them in the way that that Joel is suggesting. Um, if we continue down this path, it'll become evident that that neither can he. Um, there's an assertion that the laws of logic are 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 consistent with with God. He, he listed attributes: immaterial, invariant, universal, and knowable. So we know these things apply to the laws of logic. And hey, we have a book that asserts that these same attributes apply to an entity. Therefore, the entity exists. That doesn't follow, and it's not the topic of the debate. Um, whether or not I can account for the rules of reason, we, we know that reason exists. Um, and merely asserting that the that reason is grounded in the Bible does not demonstrate the truth of this claim. Um, I, I it, it's it's a, it's a total non sequitur. Um, so th this just going over my my notes here. I think we agree on reality. We're talking about the external world that we we find ourselves in. Um, oh, where does the reliability of reason come from? Well, that's that's an interesting way of phrasing a question. Um, so. Reliability of reason is demonstrated by its its continued reliability. Um, it's something that we can observe. It's something that we can test. Um, where does it come from is a question that doesn't make sense to me. Where does our capacity to engage in reason come from? Well, now we're talking about this whole time, chance, and matter thing. So Joel is right that I, I I'm a, a, a methodological naturalist. I, I don't think that there's anything um, other than these atoms that we uh, we find all, all around here. Um, but saying that time, chance, and matter are are the the ingredients to how we get here, how we're able to to engage in in, in rational discourse, um, is incomplete because and it, it sort of betrays an incomplete understanding of evolution. Um, mutations are are random. So that, that would be the chance that you find apologists referring to. But selection is not random. Selection is not a chance thing. Uh, and our ability over time to engage in, in, in rational thought was, was necessary for us to be able to continue reproducing and, and surviving and getting here. Um, it, it, it's, it's not hard to understand why as, as you know, evolved primates, we can engage in, in reason to a certain extent. Um, I, I do reject that there's any duality. I, I, I don't think that that's there. And then, and yeah, so, and he, Joel said, why trust atoms? It, it, it boils down to repeated, demonstrable, uh, reliable results. Thank you, Kenneth. Yeah. Uh, that was time. So now we're going to move on to cross examination. And once again, I would like to remind everyone that if you have questions for either of these two gentlemen, put them in the comments, we will be doing a QA at the end of the broadcast. And one of the most important things, which I'm still trying to learn to remember, is like and subscribe, because that stuff helps. Uh, so without further ado, uh, Joel, you're gonna begin the cross-examination. Ken, do you believe in the reality of reason? Uh, is, is reason a, a meaningful concept to you? Yeah. Um, and how do you know that reason is a meaningful concept? By engaging with it, by observing it. Um, Meaning in the past you've observed it and it works. Yes. And what's your basis for believing that reason, your reasoning will continue to work in the future? 
I, I don't know what other option there would be for me other than to continue engaging in, in reason to whatever extent I'm capable of. Um, it's reliability is demonstrated, um, on an ongoing basis. What is the relationship between the past and the future, Ken? Um, well, if you're asking about sort of the, the, like the continuity or, or uniformity of, 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 of nature, um, we so far have been able to make reasonable predictions about the future based on uh, past behavior, if I understand the question. So you're describing what's happened in the past. What's the relationship between the past and the future that hasn't happened yet? I, I'm not sure I understand the question. Um, that's okay. Uh, let's let's move on. So um, you mentioned induction earlier, I believe. Is that correct? I did. Um, do you believe in the principle of induction? I think that uh, it's it, you can demonstrate induction as a a, a mode of of reasoning. Okay, and and do you believe this because induction has always worked in the past? I well, no, I believe it because you can demonstrate the reliability of it on an ongoing basis. The fact that it has worked in the past is sort of secondary to the fact that it continues to work, but it doesn't hurt that it's, it's worked in the past. Well, you're in saying that you can continue to do something. You're describing a future state, correct? You're describing something that right. you believe will continue to obtain in the future. Right. So my, my question is on what basis do you assume that the principle of induction, which was true in the past will continue to be true into the future? Uh, because I don't believe I live in a universe where there's a God that can warp the fabric of reality when he sees fit. I yeah. think that, you know, we, we, we live in a, a universe that uh, appears to be uh, consistent based on every observation that we've, we've made. Right. Every observation that we've made in the past, again, Ken, maybe we can just move on from this point. But mm-hmm. my, my question is, what is the connection between the observations we've made in the past and what's going to happen in the future? It seems, um, I, well, we're, we're, this isn't my time to make an argument, but um, I'd, I'd encourage you to, to think more about the cir- circularity of what you're describing. Um, Ken, do you have, uh, do you believe the principle that uh, we should question everything? I do. Do you have that tattooed on your chest? I do. In Latin, do you, do you, do you also question that principle? I, yeah. And I, and I, and it's, it's affirmed when I question it. So, so you, you believe we should question whether or not we should question everything. Sure. Okay. And do you believe that uh, the proper time to believe, to believe a claim is when there's sufficient evidence? Yes. Okay. And uh, what evidence led you to that conclusion? Well, reliably in the past when I've believed things without sufficient evidence, um, it's, it's caused problems. Um, it's, it seems to me that it's demonstrable that believing things on insufficient evidence is a way to reliably be wrong about things. Okay. So again, you're, it, it sounds to me like you're assuming that there's a connection between the way things happen in the past. There's a certain reliability and regularity moving into the future. Is that correct? Yeah. Making observations based on what I've experienced. Sure. Right. So, so, um, do you see that that is question begging that to say that the future will be like the past because past futures have always been like past past. Do you, do you see that that circularity and question begging? It assumes I, the, it assumes the conclusion. Do you see that? Well, I'm not saying that things will be, I'm saying that things have been, if, if there was a, a, a future where, you know, we, we all of a sudden start making informed decisions about things and, you know, everything's up in the air as to what conclusions will be, um, then I would, I would change my, my story. Okay, um, but you don't, have, I, you don't, 
I'm stuck in, in the time loop that I'm in. So, you know, whether or not tomorrow morning I wake up and all of a sudden things are different, I, I don't have any control over that. Oh, and that, not only control, but you have no reason to expect that that, that won't happen, correct? Sure. Okay. Uh, what is logic? What is logic? Uh, I mean, I, I would say that logic, we're, we're talking about uh, a description of, of how... Man, you threw me. I, the, uh, are we talking about the laws of logic or the application? Uh, are we of out of time or do we have more time? No, uh, you're out of time, but I want okay. to let him finish answering your question unless you want to cut him off. Okay, go ahead. Finish answering his uh, question. I'm just trying to figure out if we're talking about logic as, that, that, as that's, a set of of of, of principles. No, that, that's about... okay. I wasn't I wasn't going to ask what what are the laws of logic because I think I explained that earlier. But right. rather, I was I was going to take that somewhere else. That's okay. All right, all right. So next, we're going to restart the timer for five more minutes. Uh, Kenneth, it will be your turn for cross examinations. Just so everyone knows, in approximately one hour and twenty minutes, Exmo Lex will be coming on uh, on what the puck to talk about how she used to be a Mormon. So that is pretty exciting. But in the meantime, Kenneth? All right. In 20 seconds or less, what is logic? <laughs> uh, logic are those uh, immaterial, invariant, unchanging, universal laws which govern thought. They are truths about truths. And um, they are, I mean, the law of non-contradiction. I, I think I explained what they were okay. earlier. I'm happy to do it again if you need me to. No, I got you. I got you. I, the, okay. Um, how? How do you know that, that the Bible is, is true? Well, I start from that presupposition and I find out I can make good sense of the world. Uh, and, and if you'd like me to elaborate a little bit, as it turns out, when I when I do an internal critique of every other worldview that I've encountered so far, um, I found necessary contradictions which disprove their validity and their veridicality, such as, for example, your atheism tonight. Um, but your atheism is not uh, unique in that regard. Um, I've, uh, I've been convinced that, uh, the Bible is the best explanation of the world. The biblical worldview makes the most sense out of human experience and the intelligibility of nature. And, and for example, the discussion we're having tonight, but, um, I didn't reason my way to belief in the Bible rather logically. I start from that presupposition. And as it turns out, um, it, it happens to make sense of the preconditions of even asking that question as and, you well know. And what do you use to perceive the Bible? Uh, my eyes and my reasoning faculties. And how do you know those are reliable? Uh, well, again, the Bible is not the temporal starting point in the sense of, uh, you know, I somehow have, um, you know, sort of this innate knowledge of John 3.16 or something. I was, you know, I was born with it a priori. Uh, but so temporally, I use my eyes to read the Bible and I, I reason, um, you know, using my reason to interpret the Bible. Um, the question is not temporally what our starting point is. The question is logically. And the Bible is a, is our logical starting point. Uh, so, yeah. So, I, I, does that answer your question? Uh, so, it, sort of. So, how would you know? I, I mean, I, you're well-read in philosophy. Uh, Descartes had this idea of a, of a demon that could be deceiving 
mm-hmm. people. How, how do you know that you're not being deceived, that, that when you perceive the Bible and the, the, the logical consistency therein that, that you find, that you're not being um, confused or deluded by uh, an outside spirit? Yeah, that's that's a, a good question. So what we're doing, Ken, is we're comparing worldviews. And in the biblical worldview, God reveals himself in such a way that men are without excuse. We, we've gone back and forth on this on Facebook a little Where bit. Where did you perceive that message that God reveals himself without excuse? Uh, Romans 1, 18 through 24, for example. In the Bible that you're perceiving with your eyes, that we're trying to determine how you could know that you're not being deluded by, correct? Yes, that, that's correct, Ken. Okay. So the Bible, again, is the logical starting point for the Christian worldview. And in the same way that um, I suppose you might say your five senses are the starting point for your worldview. And and the, the question, of course, that would be posed to you or anyone else would be, well, how do you know that your five senses are valid? Or did you use your five senses to come up with that starting point? And so all reasoning is going to ultimately be circular. The question is, uh, and this is, this is a question that, well, the question is, whose circle is viciously circular, uh, really spiraling down into a single singularity, a, a point, my reason, my reason, my reason, or my senses, my senses, my senses, uh, and and whose circle is going to be broad enough to encompass the whole world. And uh, as it turns out, the biblical worldview actually does account for that. So yes, I've, I've never said anything other than I presuppose biblical truth. Um, I, and that was my whole argument tonight is that when you do that, you get to account both for reasonableness and for your conclusion, my conclusion that the Bible is reasonable. So if I understand you, you're saying that you use your perception to take in the Bible mm-hmm. and the Bible tells you that your perceptions are reliable and that is how you can be certain that you're not being influenced by some other source or otherwise deluded. Well, again, in the in the biblical worldview, God reveals himself. And so um, there's there's no there's no. I mean, we could imagine, a, you know, a flying unicorn. I don't think you believe in demons that could possibly, you know, delude you. Um, I certainly don't believe that there's a demon who could delude me um, from understanding. There's there's a doctrine of scripture called perspicuity, which means clarity in in all of the Bible affirms. And so this idea of some sort of demon that, um, you know, could possibly be deceiving me, that's just not part of the biblical worldview. Again, Ken, I've I've got no no need to um in, in, to incorporate that into my worldview because that's not part of the system. What we're trying to do is we're trying to compare philosophical systems. So yeah, that, that wouldn't, that wouldn't factor in at all. Thank you, Joel. Okay. So next we will be moving on to Ken. You'll be starting this time with uh, your next five minute rebuttal. Yeah. So um, the, uh, again, I just, uh, this idea that we're here to compare moral or philosophical systems, um, we're, we're, we're so far afield from the, the question of what we're supposed to be here to discuss of whether it's reasonable to believe in the Bible. Um, and I, I, I really still would love to hear, uh, it's, it's, it's hard because as it sounded to me like Joel was affirming the Bible as sort of a, a monolithic thing. Um, and it, it, it doesn't make sense to me to, to argue belief in the Bible um, merely on the grounds that uh, it, it, it on, the, on the assertion that it could possibly ground logical absolutes um, when there are inconsistencies within it. Whether or not I can ground my 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 logic has nothing to do with whether the application of that logic um, sort of decimates the the scriptures. Um, if we're talking about things like when is it reasonable to believe in a in a, a talking donkey or a, a nine foot guy or you know whether or not I can say well logic comes from here. Joel and I are still engaged in the same 
logical systems. We're still using the same logical absolutes that 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 he described wonderfully earlier. Um, asserting, well, well, Ken doesn't like these things. He just doesn't like what the Bible says. Um, I don't, but that's not really what I was arguing. I was arguing that the things that the Bible says are they're 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 unreasonable. I mean, that's that's what we're here to talk about. That's that's the that's the whole debate. Um, so it's it seems to me that rather than than really defending the claim that the Bible is reasonable, that what what Jola is doing is is attempting to undermine my worldview rather than prop up his own. Um, if I can't you know sufficiently articulate that that his position is is unreasonable that doesn't mean that he has demonstrated that it is reasonable um asserting that i can't rebut your position therefore it's reasonable if i'm understanding him correctly this isn't demonstrating the truth of his position um this is essentially an argument from ignorance fallacy x is true because it hasn't been or can't be proven false by that guy's worldview but that's not how we determine what's true and more importantly within the context of this debate it's not how we would arrive at, at reasonable belief in something by either of our definitions of of, of reasonable so i i think that I, I'm, I'm comfortable leaving it there i i don't think there's anything really else to say ethan All right, great. Uh, well, we've got, well, sorry, I, I, I won't dictate. Uh, Joel, would you like to uh, proceed with your five minutes? Yeah, sure, Ken, if you're done. Yeah, yeah, I yield the balance of my time. <laughs> Good, sure. All right, so um, what what Ken has has argued is, essentially his argument boils down to this. Now, remember, before I get into that, remember, Ken is here to prove that the Bible, belief in the Bible is unreasonable. He's, he's got the negative position tonight and, and he needs to establish based on the principle that principles uh, that he believes in that the Bible is unreasonable. He's, but more than that, or I should say along with that, Ken has to show how he can make sense of the the issue, the concept of of um, reasonableness as a meaningful concept. Now, what, what he just accused me of was not showing that the Bible is true. But remember, the terms of our debate tonight are not to prove whether the Bible is true, uh, rather to, to show whether or not it's reasonable. And so what Ken has said is, look, a donkey talked. He just expects you to go along with him and say, don't you think that's unreasonable? But operating from within an atheistic worldview, sure, yeah, I, I could say anything is arbitrarily reasonable or unreasonable. Uh, in an atheistic worldview, remember, we're adv we're uh, advanced pond scum. And I'm sorry to be so blunt about it here. Actually, I'm not, because that's the implications of the atheistic worldview is that, um, again, it's from fish to philosopher, from goo to you. Here you are. You're, uh, you're, it's sort of an advanced version of a vinegar and baking soda volcano at a kid's science fair. And somebody poured the, the uh, vinegar into you and the baking soda into you and you're erupting now and, and look at this eruption. And who's to say whether that's uh, reasonable or not. And so here's my science experiment and there's Ken's science experiment. And, and you know, uh, I'm, I'm erupting biblical ideas and he's erupting atheistic ideas. But according to his worldview, that's all our thoughts are. That's all any of these ideas are. Um, 
there's a there's a reason why I wanted to establish the fact that can cannot account for reasonableness is because it's it's pertinent to this whole conversation because my argument is that without the Bible there is no such concept as reasonable reasonableness in the first place. So is the Bible reasonable? Absolutely. It has to be reasonable. It's Im it's eminently reasonable because it provides the basis for the uh, the the conditions, the three R's of reasonableness, the rules, the external reality, and the reliability of our um, of of our reasoning faculties. And so, Ken says I'm trying to undermine his worldview rather than prop up my own. Well, I, honestly, I think I established the the um, the reasonableness of my worldview in my opening statement, and I'm still waiting for anything other than, hey, look, a donkey talked. Uh, doesn't that seem unreasonable? At the end of the day, um, it's what we've got is on Ken's worldview. We've got an ape saying it's reasonable and an ape saying that it's unreasonable. But it, but there's no reason. Just like Charles Darwin said uh, in his famous Darwin's Doubt passage, he said, um, "Why should anyone trust the conclusions of an ape, provided there were any such conclusions?" And so Ken has uh, asserted that the future will be like the past because the future has always been like the past. So he's begged the question. Well, the Bible provides a basis for the for the principle of induction. Um, Ken has asserted that there are contradictions in the Bible as if we're all supposed to go along with him, that he has a basis for a contradiction being a problem. But a contradiction is only a problem if you can account for logic in general. And Ken says, well, we can just axiomatically presuppose uh, logic. We can just pull logic sort of out of thin air or just start with it. But uh, given atheism, we might as well just start with any arbitrary rules. There's, there's, there's no without... Um, and, and Ken uh, really downplayed the idea of having certainty earlier. And Ken's uh, other, elsewhere, he's described certainty as just being really, really convinced of something. But without the epistemological bedrock of, of some certain starting point, which Ken has admitted he doesn't have, uh, there is no reference point for judging the reasonableness or the unreasonableness of, of any truth claims, including the ones of the Bible. And so Ken still needs to provide a basis for the very debate that we're having tonight and he also needs to show that uh, my defense of the biblical worldview that does account for the uh, the rules and the external reality and the reliability of our reasoning faculty is somehow fallacious. And so far, he hasn't done that. He's accused me of all sorts of things, but he's yet to show how given his principles, given his principles, what I'm saying is uh, is somehow inconsistent or, or, or even doing an internal critique on my worldview and showing how my own principles uh, would, would contradict that. But so far, we've seen the biblical worldview is internally consistent, and the atheistic worldview doesn't even, uh, can't even get off the starting block. All right. Thank you, Joel. Uh, so we're going to move on to closing statements. And then after the closing statements, we will take questions from the audience. Hopefully, we will get more theists watching so we can have uh, you know a fair amount of questions for each person. So um, because to be clear, if, if there's only questions for Joel, I'm not going to just hammer him. Um, so, uh, yeah, if you have questions for either one, put them in the comments. Uh, in the meantime, Ken, uh, I'd like you to give your closing statement. Yeah. So the, the, the big takeaway here is, is, is for, for everyone watching is to, to pay attention in debates to where the burden of proof, uh, lies. Um, if, if one is asserting that the Bible is reasonable, um, they can continuously assert it and say that, uh, as like Joel just did, it has to be reasonable. Um, that's different from showing that it's reasonable or, or demonstrating it. Um, 
there's been this this uh, this claim that I don't have a, a starting point for the debate. The starting point is logic. Um, that that's it. We we are engaged in 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 reason and saying that because I, I look at logic as something that we observe, that we participate in, that the the reasonableness of reason is demonstrated by its continued reliability. Um, that I don't have a starting point, therefore the debate is over, is a is a very, very uh, clever way of just deflecting from actually demonstrating the reasonableness of the Bible. Um, even if all I had said was, the Bible says there's a talking donkey, when would it be reasonable to believe that? Which is far from all that I put on the table. Um, that would still be something to, to deal with. Uh, we, we could have a conversation, okay, well, we, we it's reasonable to believe in the Bible, except that part. And, and now we're having a conversation rather than just attempting to undermine logic um, and, and claim without demonstrating it, oh, I have a grounding for logic, God did it. Um, how do I know God did it? Because my book says so. How do I know my book is reliable? Because my book says it's reliable. And I'm, I'm observing it with my senses and how do I know those are reliable? Because my book says it's reliable. And if that's our starting point, then yeah, you can you can talk yourself in circles and say it's reliable because it says it's reliable because it says it's reliable. But we're not we're not demonstrating the reasonableness of it. We're just asserting it. And at in the opening statement, we talked about a belief takes on the quality of reasonableness, not just when it's asserted, but when it's demonstrated, when it is supported by evidence. Um, and and that has not happened tonight at all. Um, so whether or not I can account for the rules of reason has nothing to do with whether or not I can use them. Um, Joel has acknowledged that. He then asserts that I can use them because God did it. Um, but again, it's just an assertion. Um, we could just as easily say that that the principles of logic are grounded in some other deity that someone other, some other person claims is true and that is true and that, that the grounding of all of this is somewhere else and that the Bible is just a very, very persuasive uh, distraction from the true scripture, which can be found over there. How would we demonstrate the, the reasonableness of the competing claims? How could we demonstrate that the Bible is true, not just presuppose it and run around saying, I won. That's, it strikes me as a, um, it, it's a way of debating where you, you sort of artificially create an, an atmosphere in which you can't be wrong. Um, and, and this, this is frustrating. Um, I mean, Joel thinks that he's experiencing reality in a way where he's, he's able to ascertain what, what sort of ultimate truth is and, and he can't demonstrate it. He's, he's, again, he just asserts it and, and further asserts that he can't be wrong about it because the book says so. Um, and that any objections have to necessarily borrow from his worldview, which therefore affirm his worldview. But again, it's it's all just one circle, uh, uh, you know, virtuous or or vicious or, or otherwise. It's it's just a lot of assertions, um, and that's that's really all there is to it. Uh, Ethan, I, that's that's it. There's not really anything else to say. Thank you, Kenneth. Uh, Joel, your closing statement, and then after that, we are going to get to audience questions. So, if you have any questions for either of these two intellectual powerhouses. Put them in the comments. Um, if they're all questions for Joel, I will have to limit them because I do want to keep it as balanced and fair as possible. Um, so yeah, and here, Puck, this is my challenge to you. I, I, you are a great critical thinker. I want you to come up with some questions for Kenneth. 
Um, so Joel, uh, please go ahead. All right. So Ken says that I need to show, I need to demonstrate. Um, what, what I'm concerned that Ken has failed to understand tonight is that he and I are operating off of two completely distinct philosophical systems. When Ken says I need to demonstrate uh, the reliability or the, the reasonability of the Bible. What he's asking me to do is to provide evidence that will uh, comport with his definition of of um, evidence and demonstration. What what he fails to understand is that what we're doing tonight is comparing systems. So what I've done is I've shown within the biblical worldview the the Bible accounts for the preconditions for reasonability. It is a necessary, uh, biblical truth is necessarily true for um, reasonability to obtain. What, what Ken has done is he said, well, I don't believe in God. And yes, I am only a collocation of atoms. But what you have to do is you've got to provide evidence for me that satisfies my standard, my atheistic standard, essentially, uh, of, of evidence. Um, and, and yet he has not accounted for why he has that standard. He hasn't accounted for why he believes in the law of uh, the principle of induction. He hasn't accounted for any, uh, any moral standard by which he's judging the God of the Bible to be this moral monster. He hasn't accounted for why he believes in logic. He says, well, essentially logic just is. I can't explain it. I can't ground it. And, and that's just the way it is. And yet he accuses me of being the one making assertions. In reality, if you start with the biblical uh, worldview as your starting point, you, um, you can reason out into the world and you can make reasonable conclusions about the world, which is what I've shown tonight. If you, on the other hand, start from Ken's atheism, if you start uh, with a godless universe, if you start with an anthropology that means uh, mankind is collocations of atoms, then as Haldane, the naturalist has shown, uh, you actually undermine the very statement, man is a collocation of atoms. So what we, what we have is we've got two systems, one that can't get off the ground and is viciously circular because ultimately Ken's reasoning is valid because he reasons that it's valid. Uh, that is a vicious, he's, he kind of made light of this idea of it being vicious or a virtuous circle. But in reality, it, in final analysis, all reasoning is finally circular. The question is, do you have a circle big enough to encompass the world? Do you have a, 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 a circle big enough to encompass this very conversation that we're having? And so what I've argued tonight is that the Bible, um, the Bible provides the basis for the reliability of our faculties, our reasoning faculties. It provides the uh, foundation for the reality of the external world and its intelligibility, which uh, given his godless principles can cannot account for. And the Bible provides the basis for the rules of reasonability, the moral obligation to be reasonable and the laws of logic that make reason possible. And so uh, to the extent that we've both been reasonable tonight, we have been acting like we both tacitly believe what the Bible claims about reasonableness. And um, there's just, unfortunately, there's no escaping this conclusion. Well, unfortunately for atheism. So what I would encourage uh, Ken and um, our moderator to do is to really uh, begin to think critically about their atheism, to see the vicious and 
um, logically contradictory and necessarily false conclusions that it leads to. And not to give up reason, not to give up logic, not to give up um, a, a desire for reasonable, reasonableness, but rather to transfer their allegiance from a worldview that can't account for any of those things to the worldview that Ken claims to used to that it used to hold to, and and um, uh, Ethan as well, that which is biblical Christianity, biblical Christianity in which um, it's not uh, some random book, it's not some random belief system. I don't believe in just any random God, and and I do think it's interesting that Ken had to appeal to some random God neither of us believe in, and to say, well, we could just as easily appeal to that God. Well, I'm not arguing in favor of some other God, and neither is he tonight. So that's a complete red herring that has nothing to do with our debate tonight whatsoever. The question is, is belief in the Bible reasonable? And what I've shown is that Biblical Christianity, the biblical worldview alone, at least in terms of what we've been comparing it to tonight, which is Ken's atheism, makes sense of the very conversation we're having. It provides a basis for reasonableness. And the reasonable conclusion is to accept the reasonableness of biblical belief. Thank you both so much for your time. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. Looking forward to the questions. Awesome. Thank you. And Joel, you're not supposed to bring me into it. I was right when I heard my name, I'm like, this isn't my round, Joel. Bro, I've been praying for you all day. Come on. No, I appreciate it. Um, all right. So let's move on to questions. Um, I also want you both, while you're uh, marinating on all of these questions, think of one question at the end you would like to ask each other. And I also do want to extend a, a thank you to Joel and the Think Institute. He has invited, invited me to be on his channel. Um, hopefully, he doesn't railroad me too bad that day. Uh, oh, he's smiling. I'm done. I'm so done. <laughs> All right. So uh, first question is going to be for Kenneth. What presuppositions do you start with? Well, um, I, I, I try really hard to, to keep those presuppositions to a minimum. Um, so I, I presuppose uh, laws of logic. Um, I'm aware that I, I presuppose that my senses are you know, functioning. Um, and, and reliable, um, and that I'm engaging with with reality. Um, other than that, I, I, I don't I don't know. Um, those those are where I try to try to keep it. Um, Joel may may be able to point out some other ones that I, I may be operating under without even realizing it. But uh, yeah, I would say logic and and senses. Thank you. All right, uh, oh, uh, Joel, is it not a is it not immensely arrogant to claim that we can know a being so powerful that it wished the known universe into existence? No, that's not arrogant. Do you want to expand on that or not? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, sure. Um, well, the, the, the Christian, again, again, the Christian claim is not, uh, look how smart I am. I figured God out. The Christian claim yeah. is God by his grace has revealed himself to me. Right. Um, I, I don't claim to be some sort of uh, mental giant or, or spiritual powerhouse or anything like that. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, but for the grace of God, who I'd be in a gutter somewhere, man. I've made enough bad decisions in my life. I haven't earned my way to God. God in his grace has graciously revealed himself to me. And so my life is a product of the grace of Jesus Christ. I, uh, Biblical Christianity is the opposite of arrogance or hubris. Um, all glory goes to Jesus Christ. I was praying before this uh, debate tonight that all glory would go to Jesus Christ and not to me. So this idea that it's arrogant to 
you know, um, to say that I could know this all-powerful being. No, that's incredibly humbling. That's amazingly humbling. Who am I? The Bible says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And I say, you know, uh, the, even the apostle Paul um, said, who wrote, you know, two-thirds of the New Testament said, um, I am the, uh, he called himself the chief of sinners. And I, I like to say, well, Paul says he's the chief of sinners, but he never met me. So, you know, who, who am I that God would reveal himself to me? Well, I'm nobody. It's all grace. It's all grace. Thank you, Joel. Uh, all right, moving on. Kenneth, isn't atheism a type of presupposition in and of itself? No, it's a conclusion. Um, so if, uh, and it's there's it's the easiest thought experiment in the world to to run if if i was to ask somebody you know do you believe in you know fill in the blank on on any god uh and their answer is going to be you know yes or or no um so when when you answer no you're you've adopted atheism uh, with respect to that that god claim um that's that's all there is to it thank you kenneth all right uh I see Joel smirking. I think he wants to say something, but uh. <laughs> I, well, it, it seems like that's not the format where we, we don't get to respond to each other's answers. That that's okay. Another time then. Um, all right, uh, Joel. What are the premises of reason you are using? Uh, I think I'd like to know what Cynthia means by that when she's asking that. But um, it, I would say just what I laid out in my opening statement. If you got a chance to see that, which is that um, the three components of reason. Uh, would be the rules of reason, i.e. the laws of logic and the ethical obligation to be reasonable, the the reality of the world around us about which we are trying to reason and draw out true conclusions, and the reliability of our reasoning faculties. So our memory, our induction, our deduction, um, and there's a fourth one which escapes my mind right now. But uh, but these are these are the if. If I understand the the question, these are sort of the, the premises that would go into a meaningful discussion about, you know, what what reason is. So reason is that which is reasonableness is that which is in accordance with reason. Um, if you know if if she's looking more for like sort of an epistemological view, uh, you know, the the truth seeking faculties functioning according to their proper design in a propitious environment, as sort of Alvin planting a definition has uh has gone thank you all right our question uh is going to be for ken from andrew you've claimed that all joel has done is make assertions how is your position different or stronger when you make assertions that logic should be the starting point isn't that just like saying that is is reasonable to start with being reasonable well, I would argue that I'm I'm only being slightly more reasonable than Joel. So we're um, if we look at a you know Occam's razor and we try to to uh, remove any unnecessary um, entities from the equation, Joel made the the point that we're both um, reasoning in a circle. You know that when we when we use the laws of logic, that all reasoning is ultimately in this in this circular sort of self justifying uh, loop. Um, the difference is that. Joel argues that his loop has a stopping point and that that stopping point is God. Um, and I'm not, I'm not doing that. Um, I, I don't think that there's any problem with what, what Joel, um, if I heard him right, sort of accused me of, of, of saying that the laws of logic just are the way that they are. Um, they might be, they might not be. I don't know. I know that they work. Um, Joel saying not only does he recognize how that they work, but can also ground them somewhere. Um, and that's that's the extra step that uh, that I'm not taking. 
Thank you. All right, uh, Joel. Isn't it a bad logic? To, isn't it bad logic to start with your conclusion and work backwards? Isn't that the definition of being a presuppositionalist? Well, it depends on what you're starting with. Um, if so, that that actually dovetails really well with what the question that Ken was just answering. So, um, this idea that um, we can we can sort of start hanging out in this epistemological void and just sort of start coming to true conclusions without first presupposing anything uh, is is just it's nonsense. Um, all epistemological processes have to start with a metaphysical starting point. Uh, any conclusion about what's reasonable or unreasonable or logical or illogical has to begin with a prior conclusion of what the world is like. So Ken says, well, just adding in God, that's that's unnecessary. That violates Occam's razor. Well, um, sure, in an atheistic uh, worldview, uh, an atheistic metaphysical starting point where, uh, you know, God is precluded from the beginning, of course, God's going to be unnecessary. Uh, the, the problem is that that epistemological spiral it spirals in on itself until it becomes literally my reasoning is reasonable because my reasoning tells me it's reasonable and it seems reasonable to believe that. Um, the uh, so so what I'm getting at is this: the the atheist um, starts from the presupposition, the starting, the epistemological metaphysical starting point that God does not exist. That that okay, Ken's shaking his head. Uh, here's here's why that's true. You shouldn't have shaken your head, Ken. Now I have to explain. Um, <laughs> Here's here's why that's true. Okay, God's the, God's not precluded. He's just the, not been demonstrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the God of the Bible is precluded because the God of the Bible, same the, thing. Yes, that's true. There is only one God, contrary to what you were saying earlier. But we'll we'll get into that some other time. The uh, the God of the Bible, the the according to the biblical worldview, has sufficiently revealed Himself such that men are without excuse. So by Ken saying I have insufficient evidence, by some by Brandon, sorry Brandon, saying. Uh, I'm not convinced. He is making a denial that the God of the Bible, Yahweh, who has um, re revealed himself in an evidentially indisputable way, does not exist. That is it. That is an actual denial. And so when Ken said earlier, you know, I've only got two presuppositions. Ken, I've been counting your your uh, presuppositions. It's, it's almost like the the claim in Romans is unreasonable. Right, but you, you might you can you can certainly say that according to your worldview, but you have to admit that is a denial of that God's existence. It's not just yeah. a mere lack of belief in God. And so, when you start from that metaphysical starting point, you're going to surprise, surprise, wind back up there. The question is, is are are you viciously reasoning in a circle? And the answer is yes, because you have no basis for your arbitrary belief in logic or your own reasoning. If you presuppose the Bible, on the other hand, you get reasoning, you get evidence, you get uh, uh, reasonability, you get morality, you get it all worked in, you get the reality and the reliability of our reasoning faculties, you get the reality of the external world about which we are reasoning, and you get um, the the proper design and a propitious environment and a um, and and proper function. So you get everything you need in order to reason. You take God out of the picture. You take biblical truth out of the picture, and you're left with none of that. You're literally reasoning from the void into the void with no certainty, and I, and I mean certainty of any kind about any of your conclusions. It's it's Darwin's doubt. It's Haldane's hang up. It's uh, it's uh, there's other there's other witty little uh, names for these doubts that that are out there. But it's 
so yes, you have to start from a, a, a some starting point. I start with God and I get everything else thrown in. You start without God, you get nothing else thrown in, not even your denial of God. Thank that was you, long-winded. No, it, it was. So what I want to do, since we only have a, a couple minutes left and we don't have any uh, as many qu questions, I would just like to give you both the last five minutes. Ken, if you want to address what Joel said, and then Joel, feel free for the next five minutes to have an open, even exchange in dialogue. Yeah, so, I mean, saying that my, my worldview, you know, leads to arbitrariness or absurdity, um, now, now we're in a, engaged in a different fallacy. Now we're appealing to consequence. Um, maybe arbitrariness and absurdity is how the universe is, and we have to deal with that. Um, I, 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 I don't know how you would avoid that fallacy or, or, or be able to demonstrate that your worldview actually solves the, the problem that you're, you're diagnosing mine with. Um, it seems just as arbitrary to me to start from the starting point of, of the Bible. And sort of one point, and I want to give Joel the opportunity to speak more, is, is this idea that we can explain um, induction or the, the sort of regularity of the universe in light of scripture is, is just baffling to me. Because if we live in a universe where there's a God who can and historically has interfered in, in humanity, who, you know, when he sees fit, will do things like turn water into wine or heal the sick or, or raise the dead. Um, that seriously undermines our ability to trust our senses. Um, if at any given time, you know, things could just be different if that's how God wills them to be. Um, I, I don't know how you could argue that, uh, that this, this leads or lends any, any credibility to the, the biblical worldview as a starting point. That, that's all I'll say for now. Joel? <clears throat> and I'm afraid you're confused again, man. So it happens. <laughs> <laughs> and I listen, can I mean that out of out of all respect to you? I've really enjoyed this dialogue. But you know what you're describing? Uh, you're, let's let's start from the beginning. So you said maybe Ken, you said maybe arbitrariness just is how the world is, and that we have to deal with that. I mean, Ken, listen to where your worldview leads. Maybe we so if, if that's how the world is, it's just arbitrary, then you should have no problem with any Christian theist or any other uh, believer of any kind just making arbitrary claims. I didn't I, say it is. I said it, it may, maybe. Well, right, but I'm saying there's <laughs> no way. It, it, it's not. I'm saying it's not. And I and I don't think you believe that maybe it is either. Um, and I also didn't interrupt you when, when you were Sorry, I'm, That's all right. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Just trying to keep us all reasonable. Um, but... Uh, Ken, you said that it seems just as arbitrary to start from the Bible, but, you, but Ken, you have no problem with that, given your your atheism, given given this cul-de-sac that your your thinking has led you into, where maybe arbitrariness is fine. Well, if that's the case, then you have no way of of judging. Now, I'm not I'm I don't I'm not agreeing with you that starting with the Bible is just as arbitrary. I think starting with the Bible is 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 as more certain than starting with atheism as building a house on a rock is from building a house on sand to to use Jesus' metaphor. Um, but this idea that maybe the universe just is arbitrary, it undercuts any criticism you, you would have of me being arbitrary, if it's even possible that that's just how the universe is. I, I know you don't really believe that, so I don't want to press that. Um, earlier, you claimed that you were a methodological naturalist. naturalist. And while that may, may be true, uh, you actually tipped your hand a little bit, and you're actually not just a methodological naturalist. You're also, it seems to me like you're a metaphysical naturalist. Uh, in other words, you said we are just atoms and so 
the problem that faces a methodological naturalist is you've got to you've got to describe the world in oh in in some way and you have decided to describe the world in uh, in terms of regularity and consistency and laws of nature and and you know law of induction and things like that the problem is um whereas i from a biblical standpoint have a great basis for believing in regularity and we actually didn't get into that as much as i would have liked to in our debate uh you as an as an atheist having taken god out of the equation out of your description of the world um can you believe that apes can turn into people man you you believe that uh that uh non-life can become life you believe you know you believe literally that anything can happen and i don't know you're saying well joel yeah of course that's what science has shown but but ken ken if you if you take away the principle of god's faithfulness and regularity you literally lose the ability to have even methodological naturalism um and and here's why i say you're confused if you said that if god at any time could just make things different how does that lend any credibility to the biblical worldview well Ken, the God you just described is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not some random capricious God. The God of the Bible, you said it yourself earlier in the in the debate, does not change. He's eternally consistent. So when God does interfere, uh, let's say when God does, um, so Do you, back up one step, God keeps nature consistent according to the biblical worldview. And when God intervenes is a better word than interferes. When God intervenes, that's perfectly that there's literally no problem at all within the biblical worldview for saying that God can do miracles or God God can intervene. But that's the exception to the rule. And as a Bible-believing Christian, I believe miracles are weird. I believe that it would be really weird for fish and bread to multiply itself, but not impossible. You you have to say simultaneously that it's both impossible and uh, and completely, ar complete arbitrariness there, is fine. There, there's a lot in there, Joel. Do you mind if uh, Kenneth addresses that? Absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, and I'm not saying that that multiplying loaves and fishes is impossible, but I, I would say that it's unreasonable to believe that it happened in the absence of of any evidence. Um, so. I, I pulled up the definition of arbitrary. So we've got based on random choice or personal whim rather than any reason or system. And so if if I understand the Christian worldview, um, that then reality itself is based on what God says. Um, God dictated what reality would be. Uh, therefore, when he intervenes in reality, he's not necessarily... Uh, altering reality or, or suspending reality because reality is just an extension of God's will, um, which is therefore by definition arbitrary. It's based on God's personal whim rather than any reason or system. Um, so in, in, a, in a, a universe where, and I love how far we are from whether or not the Bible is reasonable, by the way, <laughs> in, a, in a world where, in a universe where, where God can change how reality is is appears to human beings um you know multiplying loaves and fishes is a great example um that that just torpedoes the idea that um you know logic induction etc are um that they make any sense at all because it's i mean it, 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 is logic contingent on god or is it just something that is consistent with with who god is that'd be a good a good question to put on the table uh, Joel, and maybe if you could, in under one minute, uh, address his question. 
is logic contingent on God? Uh, logic is that which is in accordance with God's knowledge and, and nature. And I still I have a minute. So um, yeah. you said earlier that if, if God doesn't act according to some system, then God is by definition acting arbitrarily. Can that completely misunderstand the nature of God? God is by definition the highest trans, uh, transcendent uh, entity and mind that there is. There could not possibly be a standard above him. I mean, it sounds like you're using a version of Euthyphro's dilemma here. Is the system above God or is, is the system, you know, uh, therefore uh, below God and therefore arbitrary? But that's not how God operates. I mean, you need to understand the biblical worldview better. God's God's nature is logical. God's nature is consistent. So when God intervenes, that is consistent with the biblical worldview and the decree of God from before the creation of the world. As a former professing Calvinist, you, sorry, as a former Calvinist professing Christian, you you really, you should know that, man. You should know uh, the theology behind God's decree. When God acts in nature, he's acting according to his decree. There's absolutely nothing inconsistent about that. And, and because of that, that is why the scientific revolution was a Christian movement. And we've talked about this before. Probably it's outside the scope of this conversation, but there's a reason why that started in, in the Christian world and nowhere else. Uh, 20, tw in 20 seconds, Kenneth. Are God's decrees dictated by anything other than his personal whims, whether they're consistent with his nature or not? I'm just asking, are God's decrees dependent on anything other than what God wants to do? Uh, could you define what a whim is? I mean, his, 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 his impulses, his, his desires. I mean, whatever God decides that he wants to do, um, are, they root, are God's desires rooted in anything other than what God desires? Okay, so I just looked up the definition of whim, and uh, it's a capricious or eccentric and often sudden idea or turn of the mind, fancy. Uh, so no, God does not have whims. I, like I said earlier, God's not capricious. Um, in fact, I even use that word capricious. Uh, so, so no, according to the Christian worldview, God acts out of consistency with his, with his good, pleasing and perfect will, which again, if you knew the Bible, Ken, you'd, you'd know that I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to make an ad hominem here at all, because, uh, I find you to be very knowledgeable about Christian theology, but you know better than to say God acts capriciously. I would stipulate that God, uh, acts quite capriciously throughout the scripture. That's that's stipulative, but that's not consistent with, with the biblical picture. I would say you read it for yourself, people. <laughs> I like uh, that. I please like do. that. Please do. Um, this has been tremendous. Uh, Joel, uh, I, I appreciate you coming on. Kenneth, I appreciate you coming on. Um, let me know what you thought in the comments. I was really excited for this. Hey, Joel, can I get a, wait, let me try and do this. Can I get a high five? I, which, way is, which way are you? Are you uh, all like, like uh, this? There you go, yeah, yeah. Wait, there we go. Uh, Bam, bam, bam. Yeah. All right, all right, Kenneth. I'm going this way. Bow. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's my goal of this channel, to prove that two people can have completely different ideas and still have a meaningful and friendly conversation. Uh, Joel, I, I did my best to, to make you feel welcome. I, I know this would technically be uh, away territory for you, um, but I, I did my best to keep it as straight down the middle as I could. Great. I, I hope you feel welcome coming back. And I hope you would encourage other theists to come on as well so they can share their ideas and how they feel as well. Yeah, uh, Brandon, th this is great, man, as always, definitely. And I don't know any theists, but I know a lot of Christians, so I'll be, I'll be sure Christian. to do that. <laughs> Sorry, man, I'm just I'm giving you a hard time. I'm giving no, I know. Um, and, and if you liked uh, what Joel had to say, uh, check him out at the Think Institute. It is on Facebook and YouTube. 
Uh, gentlemen, I'm going to take you off the screen for a moment, but this has been a, a genuine pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks a lot. Anytime.